Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This is your host, Chris Sims, and this time we're going way back in time to another archive episode from when Go Dig a Hole was on a podcast network. Several years ago, we went independent and totally listener-supported. We appreciate all the support from everyone who listens to the show, so it's great to get all the old ones back out there. This episode aired sometime in 2015, and while many of the archive episodes have been omitted due to dated or inaccurate info, this one still feels as relevant as it did six years ago. Here are some of the questions we explore. How do you make yourself stand out as an undergrad? What does a good job applicant look like? Where do you start when you're building your professional network from scratch? These are the questions we struggle with early on in our careers as archaeologists, but it's something on your side if you're still an undergrad. Opportunity. Our guests, David Field and Stephen Wagner, have a guide to your opportunities to succeed early on. You've got some questions. Go to go! You're feeling stressed, man. Go to go! Put on your GPS and go to go! Under the dirt, something is glistening. Download and listen to Tia, Katie, Chris, and Kirsten. You should go to go! Hi, welcome to the eighth episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. I'm your host, Chris. Today, we've got Dave Field. Hi, Chris. And Stephen Wagner. Hello. Today, we'll be talking about skills that set you up for successful experiences in archaeology. So um, Dave and I worked together in Kentucky about five years ago, and then again in California very recently. And in the meantime... Uh, Dave has worked all over the country, and one of the things that stood out to me as he was telling me about his background was um, an internship that he had in undergrad and some courses that he was taking that at the time were kind of ahead of the curve. So, Dave, do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so, um, I, originally in my undergrad, I did my initial field school um, in Jamaica, and I'll, I'll get back to that because that was also a really good experience that kind of helped me further along in archaeology. But um, the internship was, um, I did two internships um, over the summer um, at Fort Knox, and this was through a private CRM company. And um, so the advantage of that was um, instead of, you know, just uh, working as a typical field school and doing an excavation, uh, I actually got to work as a CRM archaeologist for two summers, which was great. So in that time, um, I really got to get my feet wet and understand what a CRM archaeologist does on a daily basis and really experience that um, before I graduated versus um, kind of living in this uh, academic world and then kind of being thrown out into a, an area where they do archaeology completely different and everything kind of operates a a little bit different way. Um, so the skills I picked up from that, that I probably wouldn't have been able to get, um, in undergrad, um, a lot of it was just kind of basic stuff, but it's just good information to know. Um, just real basic stuff, like how to cite um, a bearing with a compass. Um, uh, that's typically not something you'll learn in the classroom. Um, but at least in the East, um, doing Eastern CRM archeology, span that's going to be something you're going to be doing probably quite a bit. <laughs> Um, and, you know, using a, a handheld GPS, most people have experience with that. Um, if you get your hands on a tremble, um, even better. Um, but I got to do that and really just understand, um, what the type of work is involved in a phase one, phase two, and phase three 
archaeology survey. Um, the methods are different um, in CRM versus academia, um, so this was very helpful for me. And also just talking to, working alongside other CRM archaeologists and just figuring out what they like about the industry, what they don't like about the industry, you know, are they planning on leaving and why? And, um, and just getting to have the experience of being a CRM archaeologist, I think, was, was extremely helpful for me um, in my undergrad experience. Nice. And uh, it's also a pretty unique experience to have a, a paid internship because most undergrads have to go through the required, you know, unpaid field school and that can yeah. be quite financially draining. So it's an added bonus that you got to have a paid internship in uh, CRM while you were still figuring out undergrad. Yeah, definitely. That was, that was a, definitely a plus. Nice. Well, what were some other courses that uh, you took that really set you up for uh, some successful experiences in archeology? span um, I'd say the first thing that stood out was um, my GIS experience. Uh, I got to take a number of GIS courses when I was an undergrad. And although I didn't actually do um, any GIS um, in the field as an archaeologist, um, I did get a little bit of experience on just doing some shumble work and kind of uploading stuff, but nothing really GIS intensive. Um, but it did kind of give me a better picture um, overall is, is what is possible with the data that we have and to kind of allow me to have a, a better framework of um, what we're not doing with the data that we get. Uh, we, as a CRM archeologist, you'll, you know, you'll record lots and lots and lots of data um, in the field and you probably won't see it ever again after it's recorded. Uh, it's going <laughs> to report, but that's pretty much about the extent of it. Um, so um, really, it was, it was interesting with uh, some of the more advanced GS courses that I did because it allowed me to um, have these internship experiences and then sit down um, in a GIS course and say, okay, what can I do um, with what I know um, about CRM? So what I was able to do is um, in the East, you know, it, it's different in every state, but with when the area that we were working in, we had certain parameters of um, what we considered an area to be surveyable and unsurveyable. Um, if the slope was of the, the ground was more than 20%, um, that was a write-off. You didn't have to survey in that area. If it was a, a marshland, you didn't survey in that area. There were a number of different, um, uh, certain eroded soils, you know, didn't have to be um, dug in either. Um, so what I did was I um, took a digital elevation model and overlaid that with a uh, soil survey map and was able to map out all of the areas that we know are archaeologically unsurveyable. And um, yeah, that, that'd be immensely helpful, you know, for, for a CRM firm to understand, you know, when you have a, a land survey, you know, what right off the bat uh, can we just, you know, take a look at, or maybe send a couple people out to investigate and sending an entire crew out, you know, to, to take a look at it. Um, so those are the kind of things that I was looking at, um, that helped me along the way, kind of give me a, a more broad perspective of, of CRM. Nice. And it sounds like it also helped you be more efficient in the field as well. Yeah, it, it could, if, if it, uh, if something like that were utilized, uh, it, it could be definitely. <laughs> well, Stephen, uh, so Stephen has had quite a bit of experience leading uh, large CRM projects, and he's been on uh, more of the management end of figuring out, you know, 
what makes an attractive job applicant. But uh, before we get into that, let's back up and uh, hear some of Steven's experiences while he's been in school as well. Like, uh, what's helped you out along the way, Steven? Ooh, when I was in school? Um, that was quite a while ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I graduated with my bachelor's in 1995. So, um, like, GIS was just getting started um, and, and really wasn't mainstream at that point. Uh, so I clearly didn't get a lot of the more technical uh, training that um, that Dave did. Uh, I, I think the things that, you know, re really uh, probably some of the most helpful stuff was um, kind of the way my uh, coursework was structured. Um, so my field school was a field school. Uh, it was uh, six weeks out in the field, but it was tied directly to uh, the methods and theory class, which preceded it, and then um, the uh, lab work class, the lab analysis class that um, was the following semester. So basically, you, you took the three courses in order, and you started out with the method and theory where you, we'd actually be discussing the site that we'd be using for the field school, and then we ended up at the field school. Um, and then following that, uh, you know, we learned the lab methods, uh, based off the, uh, artifacts that we got from that field school. So it was all really kind of tied together and, you know, it wasn't perfect. Uh, the weather wasn't very cooperative in, uh, 1994. The Mississippi river was, um, really high at the time. Guess what? It is again. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I could nitpick, uh, you know, what we did in class and, and, and over the course and what would be better or what wouldn't be. But I think having it tied together like that, so you saw it from the conceptual level to the practical field level to, you know, what happens to all this stuff when you're done, um, that ha having that all tied together was um, a really good experience. Because um, I think uh, a lot of times, even you know, as a field tech, not, not just a student, but a lot of times you are so compartmentalized in what you're doing that um, you don't necessarily even, you can't really get a, even a good glimpse of what the big picture is. Yeah, definitely. Uh, like, why are, we, why are we skipping those areas that, that David was talking about? Why are we, um, you know, choosing like a 15-meter a shovel testing interval or, or um, whatever our transects are. Why are we doing all this stuff? You know, why are we even here? Um, you know, so, sometimes, you know, that's communicated. Like we'll talk about like, you know, well, so-and-so's got, got a development project and so we got to go out and survey it. But there's a lot of background stuff that, you know, are, are usually established by like state or provincial guidelines that, you know, we kind of take for granted um, yeah. as an experienced archaeologist. Um, and, and, you know, pe especially people at the very beginning, they don't know, you know, why we're doing this. This is just how we're doing it. And, and, and so I, I thought that, you know, that from my schooling was a really good, um, approach. Uh, and, and I, I think the big thing is, um, uh, how do I put this? Uh, the major thing from schooling is to take advantage of the opportunities. Um, when, when you're in school, you, you have a lot of opportunities to go out and try different things. Uh, you know, whether it's the GIS, uh, 
whether it's an internship, internships are great. Um, if you can do it, if you can get a paid one. Um, but you know, having your field school, that's tied to tied to your uh, curriculum is pretty good. But at the same time, getting experience that's outside of the immediate area is also pretty good. Yeah. Because people do different, different things. I'm Chris, I'm sure you've seen this with, uh, you know, you've worked in Kentucky a lot and then suddenly you're in California and guess what? It's, it's, it's a different sort of thing. And yeah. Not, and not just because of environmental, you know, yeah, your, your regions are different, but, um, a lot of your methods are different because your client is different. Your project's different. You know, the reviewing SHPO is different. Um, and, and there's a lot of variation there. And I think, you know, at, at the schooling level or, you know, starting out at the beginning level, really a big thing is getting as much breadth of experience as you can, um, seeing the wide variety of what's out there, you know, on, on a practical level for hiring. And, and I know I'm kind of jumping ahead to your next question there. No, go ahead. Um, uh, like what people want, what um, a lot of people who hire want for um, a field tech, like, you know, an opening entry level position, what they more often than not want is um, they want like re really, and this is kind of a bad way of putting it, but um, they, they want someone they don't have to train. <laughs> yeah. So they, they really want people with a lot of like technical expertise um, you know, you're not going to be designing a project. So, um, while I was just talking about how it's useful knowing what, you know, the background stuff is, uh, most of your bosses aren't going to care if you know how to do any of that. Um, what they're going to want is that, you know, you know what you're doing and they don't really have to train you. So it's like, you know, how to dig a shovel test. Um, you know, how to do lithic analysis. You understand lithic analysis. You know the difference between a flake and, and a non-cultural piece of rock that's the same material. Um, you know, you know, how to use a Munsell. You know um, how to do faunal analysis. You know, if, if you have experience in all these different things, even if it's not a lot, but you know, you got good experience out of your uh, lab classes or maybe an independent study or your uh, senior theses, if, if, if you did a senior thesis, you know, that, that's really what they want. Um, the rub there is that what they want is for you to be able to do it in their particular system without any training, which doesn't ever happen because every firm does it differently. But yeah, so it, it's tricky because for the long-term happiness, you really want a lot of the back end stuff of knowing how to do, you know, all, all the, you know, planning and, and, uh, you know, that's where your theory comes in. That's where your methods come in. But yeah. on the, like getting started on a job, what people are really looking for is they just want people who can knock out the little widgets. Yeah, definitely. And that's, uh, that's a really important thing uh, is to take a theory class or at least like read up on theory because, being able to conceptualize and being able to wrap your head around the whole process is so important in archaeology because if you think you're out there just to dig for digging's sake, then it's going to burn you out really fast, and um, that's not enough to carry you through archaeology. Um, 
I was I was actually going to say that uh, Stephen, my experiences um, in CRM have been exactly what what you outlined. Is uh, going back to what you're saying about um, the experience being kind of compartmentalized in in the work that you do. Um, you know, going back to my internship, that was kind of one of my my problems was that I got to get hands-on experience in, in doing uh, CRM work, but I didn't really quite understand how that fit into a general framework. I didn't, I didn't even know what the framework was at the time when I was doing it. Um, and so it, it kind of took me a while to, to read up on, you know, the laws and, and, and how does, you know, CRM operate as an industry? You know, how, how does the bidding, how does, how do companies get jobs? Like, I understand there's a bidding process. How does that work? You know, like, where does it all, you know, kind of come together? Um, that was definitely, definitely some of my experiences as well um, in archaeology. Well, and I think that some of that you can pick up on, you know, like an internship's a great place, um, you know, even though you didn't, uh, because there's, there's a training aspect involved with internships, right? You're not just hired hands. Um, you know, like in the office as a field tech or a lab tech or, you know, any sort of tech, um, it's, it's tougher because we have a budget, we have a time, you know, like a time frame. we got to get our stuff done. We don't necessarily have time to walk you through the entire process. And honestly, by the time, you know, we get to the end product, you know, when we're building our deliverable, it might be winter. You might be working for someone else. You might be out in a different project. You're not hanging around the office. Right. Right. Um, you know, so really like getting the big picture thing, I, I think is something that you should be picking up in school. Um, but I, I will add that, you know, long-term goals here is, is you will probably be aiming for some sort of grad degree. And, um, that's, that's not necessarily a bad time to be figuring that stuff out. Um, you, you know, like I, I was lucky with my undergrad, um, that I, I had a little bit of the big picture stuff and then I was able to put more of it together, um, when I went to grad school and then when, you know, I actually did start running stuff, there was still a learning experience. Like there, there is no amount of training that can replace actually doing it and figuring it out for yourself. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then in the longer run too, these are the kinds of things that will set you up for longer term success, you know, further down your career. If you can, you know, be really successful at conceptualizing and wrapping your head around the whole process, then you can anticipate various things that come up, you know, throughout the process of conducting archaeological research, you know, whether that's in CRM or academic you know, you can adjust things in the field as you go. You can also, you know, make sure that you're collecting the necessary data to, you know, compile a really robust report for your client or for your grantor or for a publication that you're hoping to produce. All of that, you know, can set you up for success early on and also later on. Sure. Um, and, and beyond that, I, I think that um, th there's a very real danger um, if, if you follow one single stream and this going back to my my thoughts on you know getting uh you know a lot of diversity in, in your experience um if, if you follow only one stream and you don't get a lot of diversity you don't necessarily notice why you're doing specific things you know and, and it kind of becomes a this is why we've always done it yeah you know and, and it's like 
you know, why are we doing it this way? I don't know. This is how the boss did. And you talk to them and they're like, I don't know. This is how, you know, my boss did. And you talk to their boss and it's like, well, this is what we did in my field school back in 1976. Um, And and, uh, there's a lot of um, cultural persistence in uh, field method. And now that I've moved from Wisconsin up to, um, up up to Alberta, uh, it's, it's a lot more noticeable um, that, there are some things that I like how Alberta does it better. And um, there are some things that I like how Wisconsin does it better. And neither of them are really based on like, well, the, the nature of our archaeology is different or the, you know, the, the legal framework for what we're doing is different. A lot of it is because when the CRM firms were established, this is what the going method was. And, and there's not a lot of, innovation in CRM, unless it's something that involves doing what we all already did, but doing it quicker. Yeah. Uh, you know, so like digitizing, uh, you know, like using tablets in the field, using digital cameras in the field, using uh, GPS and GIS, you know, we're not functionally doing a lot of different things, but we're, we're doing a lot of the same stuff, but we're doing it quicker. So we've covered so far, um, taking field schools, taking internships, uh, ideally they'd be paid, uh, working with CRM, understanding how to conceptualize your field work and understanding how to innovate and how um, archaeology policy and contract work is done. But there's uh, some other ways to take advantage of opportunities when you're in your undergrad and maybe we could sum up all of them. Um, Stephen, what would you say would be like kind of the bullet list of opportunities that like an undergrad needs to be taking advantage of? Um, that's, that's really a tough thing to answer because it's, it's kind of dependent upon uh, what school you're at and uh, what your department's like. Yeah. Most departments, you know, they, they offer opportunities, you know, you got your field school, maybe you have more than one field school if you can swing it. Um, uh, you know, possible internships, the profs have, you know, no people who, you know, are looking for interns or something like that for a summer. Um, if you've already had your field school, there's no reason not to start field teching as a summer job. Um, and, and yeah, there, there's a lot of those types of opportunities, uh, independent studies. Um, I, I think in, in some ways that's more of a grad school thing than a an undergrad thing, but in Penn studies are always a good thing. Yeah, it, it, it really depends on uh, what sort of, what your program's like. And um, if, if any of the listeners are still not like not actually in uh, college at university, uh, you know, maybe that's something to consider when you're looking at schools is uh, look at, you know, not just what you know, the coursework is like, but, you know, what sort of opportunities can, can, you know, those uh, departments provide. Yeah. But, you know, and, and, you know, part of it is when you are field teching, when you are lab teching is you go out and you work at a, for a lot of different places. Um, it, which is a really hard thing to recommend because if you get a job and they are, offer you like a permanent or nearly permanent position, it's really hard to be like, no, I got, I got to move on. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, but I, I think that there is a, th- there is a certain strength of actually getting a lot of different experience. 
So while I wouldn't go so far as to say that, you know, you, you need to quit your existing job and move on and get it, you know, another riskier job. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, don't be afraid to take that leap. Like, you know, if, if, you know, the company that you've worked for, um, has to, you know, you know, basically lay you off because of, uh, you know, field season's over or something like that. And another opportunity comes up, don't be afraid to move on and you don't have to be, you know, you can be nice about it and, and tell your, you know, previous employer and, and be friendly about it. Like, Hey, look, they're offering me this position. Um, you know, I think I need to take it. Yeah. And chances are your employer is going to be uh, pretty receptive to that because, you know, most people want to see other archaeologists succeed and want to see, you know, young archaeologists or people earlier in their career, you know, be developing themselves. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, even if you're working in the same geographic region, working for different firms within that region, you'll start to see a lot of differences. And, and uh, that helps reinforce, you know, like all the, you know, more theoretical method stuff that you are learning as a, you know, in your coursework. Nice. Dave, how about you? What would uh, you recommend as like the go-to skill set that you need to be picking up um, while you're an undergrad or at least early on? Right. So I would, uh, it's going to be a little bit different for each person, I think, because everyone has different uh, research interests. Everyone has different directions. Um, you know, um, a lot of people have their eyes set on that PhD, it all, you know, already in undergrad, some people kind of want to work in CRM a little bit. So um, kind of the skills you pick up, um, you know, might be tailored a little bit to each person's individual interests, but just some more general things that I, I think, um, would be useful for people. Um, Steven mentioned getting a, a second field school if possible. Um, I would, I would definitely agree with that. And yeah. I would also add, um, on your second field school, if you have the opportunity to do it, um, take a look at doing it at a different university than the one that you're already at. And the reason I would advise that, um, was because the, um, the network of people is now suddenly different. You're going to be interacting with people that you haven't been with throughout your, your undergrad experience. Um, I know the field school that I did, um, it was through my university, but it was actually considered a, um, study abroad program because it was in Jamaica. And so we had students from universities from all over the country. And that was a really great experience in meeting other archaeology students, um, undergrads specifically from around the country and get to talk to them about their programs and what are they learning and what are they doing and what are their interests. And um, it can really help to kind of kickstart your your network of, of people that you that you know and can kind of go to for for questions or information or, or, or whatever it might be. Um, so again, if, if, if that's possible, if you can pick up a second field school, um, I would definitely try to pick that up. Um, again, the internships is a, is a great thing, especially if you're, if you're looking at, uh, at CRM, um, and, um, Steven touched on this too. And I think it was a really good point that once you move into CRM, um, there are a lot of companies, not all companies, but there are, I've, I've noticed a number of companies who expect you to know what that job is the second you you walk in the door. Yeah. And this is the only industry that I've ever seen that does this. Um, but it is, it's just what it is. And, um, you know, these skills aren't 
too hard to pick up. They're not, you know, um, it's just kind of knowing how to do things a, a certain way. And as Steven said, they want you to do it their way. Um, so not only do you know how to do it, you might need to know how to do it a number of different ways um, and just kind of be able to adapt to whatever gets kind of thrown at you. Um, so I would seek out those those kind of basic CRM skill sets, um, you know, digging shovel tests, um, what's involved in a phase two, what's involved in a phase three, um, you know, learning how to, uh, you know, site with a compass, uh, use a tremble if you can, um, you know, any, anything that you think you're going to need, um, in your CRM experience. Um, I would so highly suggest that people pick that up in their undergrad if, if at all possible. Um, if they, if they can't pick that up in their program, ask somebody, you know, seek someone out online or, you know, find some, there's, there's resources online that you could, uh, turn to. Those are kind of the main things I would try to, uh, advise someone who was, who was looking to get into archeology, span but specifically CRM archeology, span if you're just going a complete, um, academic route, you know, your, your interests might be, you know, pretty varied. But also, and I know uh, Stephen said this as well, but um, you know, have a diversity in, in what you are aware of. Um, if you're interested in CRM, understand the entire process of how it works from, from start to finish and have that kind of more global mindset of, of, of what it is that you're doing and what it is that, you know, yeah, you're digging these shovel tests at, at 10 meters, but why? Why are you doing this this way? And yeah. I think that would really help you, um, as you said, Chris, kind of sustain you a little bit more in um, keeping your interest up in archaeology. And um, it might feel more like a career instead of just a job at that point, if you kind of understand the whole framework. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, you guys both touched on some important things. It, getting a wide breadth of experience makes you very adaptable and, you know, able to pick up on, you know, whatever is done differently at a different site or in a different region or with a different company and all that. So get as much as you can. But um, I guess to start heading towards the end of the this episode, we've talked about all of the opportunities and experiences that will be important to set you up for success. Now, how do we leverage that into you know, successfully applying for a job? So how do we turn all of this into a successful CV or like successfully representing ourselves as a job applicant? That is a good question. <laughs> that's, that's a very hard question. Yeah. Um, and, and I have, you know, I, I've hired plenty of people as field technicians and I've been going through the hiring process now that I've recently moved in, over the past year. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I know what I look for in, in resumes and CVs. And that's not necessarily what other people are looking for, um, partly because we don't have like a unified theory of human resources. We just know what we want. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think that, um, well, uh, let, let me start with a, uh, j just a little warning um, that, you know, we're talking about getting a lot of breath. And I think that really, um, makes you a stronger archaeologist and makes you a better candidate. But a lot of the people who are doing the hiring, because they want you to do it their way, they don't want you, you know, they don't want to hire some somebody who does some sort of weirdo sort of 
thing. You know, if, if they're, they're used to arbitrary levels, you know, making a sale that, you know, it's like you understand, um, you know, like single context recording or something like that is going to do you no good at all. And yeah. probably count against you. Um, because, it, and, and it, it's insane. Um, it's, it's kind of, I want to say it's an older generation thing, but I, I think it's also um, just that, you know, we're so used to doing our own way of doing things that, you know, we want you to do it our way. Um, and, and so that's what you need to sell. What, what, what the, all that breadth of experience gets you is the ability to show up and be like, Oh, you do it this way. Yeah, no problem. I do it. I've done it this way before. Yeah. That's, that's what you need to sell. And you need to sell that in your cover letter. You know, like your CV will be like, Hey, look at all the different places that have worked. And, and people will be like, I don't know. You, you, you know, you got your MA from, you know, like a UK university or, you know, I don't know, your field school was in the Southwest and you know, I'm looking at something for the Eastern Woodlands. Yeah. Uh, but what you need to sell is that it's like you have a wide breadth of experience that makes you a stronger candidate. But for this specific, you know, job, here's, you know, here's the experience of note that will, you know, shows off, you know, what you can do. So if the job's going to be in Georgia, it's like, well, you know, I haven't worked in Georgia, but I've worked in Alabama and, 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 you know, tying it in that you are familiar with, you know, at least the region, if not, you know, the specific area, um, that you're used to like the environmental, you know, conditions of, you know, both the archaeology and, you know, field work, like, you know what it's like to work in a swamp, say, or, you know, what it's like to work in, you know, prairie or, um, you know, tying that all in. Um, and, and, you know, so you need to be, you know, the hard part is you need to be able to predict what they want. <laughs> and, and, you know, that there's a good luck for you because I, I don't know that I have good advice necessarily to tell you on that. Um, hopefully the job announcement you know, if there is a job announcement, tells you. Um, but otherwise, uh, yeah, it's, it's it'll be a tough sell. Uh, on the other hand, this job, you know, in, in addition to not training and wanting you to do it, uh, um, you know, their particular way, uh, the advantage of having a breadth of experience is you've met a lot of people. Hopefully, you've impressed a lot of people, and they will help you find jobs. Yeah. Um, if, if you keep in touch with them, they'll be, you know, it's like, Hey, anybody still looking for work? Cause I got a friend who's looking, looking to hire people and, and that can turn into more, more and more work. Um, my current position, um, I have it strictly because, uh, one of my bosses had worked with one of my former coworkers who, who was a coworker of mine 15 years ago, but <laughs> saw it on the Vita and, and, um, I, I should add my friend, our mutual friend wasn't even one of my references, but saw the, the, uh, the job location on, on my uh, resume. And it's like, Oh, I know someone who worked there and, and called them up. And, and that's how I got my job. It, you know, like I had interviewed with a lot of different firms and I have 20 years of experience doing a lot of different things, but what gets you, gets you that foot in the door is almost always more, um, the fact that you've worked with someone who's worked with that person who who can and will vouch for you nice yeah building a strong network is just one of those crucial things that you've constantly got to maintain 
but it's one of those you know things that's quite a struggle to start from scratch early on but once you get it rolling it'll really serve you well yeah i've i've um had the exact same experiences in, in archaeology as well um um, I've been in job interviews where, um, you know, we're going through the typical job interview process and they get to the point on my resume where they, they see that I've worked in a certain area and then said, Oh yeah, you, you know, so-and-so. And I said, Oh yeah, yeah. I, I worked with them for, you know, eight months. And then the, the interview basically ended there. <laughs> you're okay. Oh, you worked with so-and-so and, uh, you're hired. Um, it was, you know, it's, Archaeology is, is definitely um, a kind of a who you know type field. Um, I think every one of my jobs, except for I can think of one, um, only one job that I get actually just turning in a resume and, um, you know, just getting kind of picked out of the group type thing. Everything else has been, um, and even then, even in that job, it was because I worked in, a, uh, we're working in a very specific valley and I had worked on the other side of that valley. And so I had experience in that location. And so they picked me out because of a previous project that I'd been on. Um, but everything else had been, you know, who, you know, and it, that's just kind of the nature of the field. So getting back to networks, um, I think this is probably the most crucial thing in, in getting a job. Um, so while I wouldn't tell someone in undergrad to, you know, be worried about their network that, you know, they need to be, you know, hammering at a network and, and be on Twitter every second of the day and, and get on Facebook and, you know, be so, you know, get on any type of social networking thing you can. Um, I would be aware of it, you know, um, reach out to people, think about, you know, where you want to work and, and who you would ideally like to work with and who you'd ideally like to, um, what region you'd like to work in and, you know, maybe start reaching out to, you know, some people that, that work in that region and, um, talk to them about, you know, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, and just kind of start, uh, you know, uh, as you said, Chris, building it from scratch is uh, is a pretty difficult task. And so um, having that as a starting point, I think, doesn't hurt. Um, and then once you – getting that first job is probably going to be the hardest. And then after that, you know, you can kind of get the ball rolling. Um, on top of that, I would say um, having a website, having your own personal portfolio website is not a bad starting point either. Um, that's something a lot of people overlook. Um, a lot of people don't have that and it's definitely something that can set you apart from the rest. And, um, I think that would serve someone well, especially in undergrad. Um, Chris, I know you and I have talked about regretting not, you know, having a blog sooner or doing something of that's that type, you know, sooner in our career on um, kind of waiting till, till later, um, before yeah. really the ball rolling on that. And so, um, if you can start that in undergrad, awesome. Uh, you know, that, that will probably, you know, serve you well to get more of the things that you've worked on out there instead of just, uh, you know, having a CV or resume, um, kind of being able to display a lot of the projects that you've worked on. Um, um, giving someone a, a more whole picture of who you are and what your interests are, um, I think is a really, really good tool to have. Yeah, definitely. And Dave and I are going to have a uh, standalone episode on, you know, managing web presence and building your blog and, um, all the aspects that are tied with that. But while we're talking about taking advantage of opportunities, um, you know, a lot of universities have free, 
clinics and workshops to pick up skills like web development and uh, you know various other skills that you could think to pick up. So you know seek that out and uh, you know just start building your chops. Definitely. I'm I'm, I'm going to have to disagree. Uh, no, I, I mean, by all means, do this stuff. This is a good experience. It, it can pay off in the future. At the field tech level, nobody's going to care. Um, and, and, and that is the awful truth. Uh, like I was talking about how basically a lot of people who hire are primarily going to, you know, they, they want an out-of-the-box field tech. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not going to spend time looking at your website. They're not going to spend time looking, you know, checking social media. Um, a lot of these guys don't even have a Facebook account. Um, it's, you know, really what they want is can this guy dig holes? Can this, uh, can this lady, you know, do whatever? Um, you know, they have, they have particular niches of skills that they need to fill and that's what they're going to be looking at. Um, and, and which is not, you know, and I don't want to dissuade you from, you know, having a, like, you know, an archaeology or a professional focused, uh, you know, website or Twitter account or Facebook page or blog or, or any of that stuff. I do. Um, but I can pretty much guarantee you that at least at the entry level, it's not going to count for much. Um, if, if they are looking for something more managerial or they're looking for someone who actually can maintain a social media presence for the, for the company, that'll pay off. Um, but if they're looking for a field tech or a lab tech, it's not going to pay off at all. Um, but, you know, like, I, I mean, that, that's kind of a gloom sort of thing. But um, the, the other thing to consider is for networking, I take a very organic approach to it. Um, don't stress out about meeting people. Don't stress out about you know chasing people down. Um, yeah, if, if you want to work for a particular company or you want to work in a particular region, um, start getting involved. Start meeting those people. And, and one way to do it is um, if there's a regional conference, you go and you talk to people. And, and you know, you, you, it's it's just participating in the community gets you involved and gets you noticed. Um, all, all those opportunities we we're talking about as an undergrad, you're going to organically start building your network. Um, they're going to be the people you worked with, people you worked for, you know, and, and stuff like that. And, you know, after one job, you may only have like three points of contact, but after, you know, a couple of years of working, that's going to grow a lot. And archaeology is a very small community. Um, I, you know, we, uh, as an example, we were out in the field this summer. We were, we were just, um, there was a site near uh, our project area that it's kind of a spectacular site. So we wanted to swing by and take, take a look at it. We stopped by, a bus pulls up and a bunch of archaeologists walk out. And it's like, oh, hey, um, you know, and, and like my boss knew who these people were. And, or, um, you know, particularly uh, it was a prof and, and some students and he knew the prof. And so I got to meet more people and it's archaeology really is that small that it's full of, uh, coincidences and, Oh, you worked on that project too. And lots of that stuff. Um, it happens a lot and it happens partly because you just stay active. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, totally don't rely solely on a blog or your web presence to get you through into a, you know, like working network in, in archaeology, but um, it can serve you as, you know, one of the many modes of, you know, maintaining or establishing a network. Like the job that I got in California, I got oddly enough through Twitter and then, uh, you know, directly through working with the archaeology podcast network, uh, Chris Webster, you know, hired me on through that. And I had never met him face to face. And I don't know at what point along the process, uh, it, either him or I or, or Dave realized that we would all be working together uh, after so many years. Um, but, you know, to go back to establishing an organic network, that's one of the resources that is really the most valuable at a university is the face time that you get with your advisor, your professors, the chair of the department, you know, just keep that contact going and, you know, really like, you know, kind of pester them, let them know that you're looking for a job, let them know what you're interested in, use them as a soundboard because that's what they're there for is to develop you. And, uh, you know, they can put you in contact with their network too and grow your network pretty early on. I would agree entirely as well. Um, definitely do not rely on, on social media or, or anything on the internet over, um, face-to-face contact. Um, that is the number one thing that's going to, you know, get you in contact with people that's going to make you memorable. Um, as Steven said, going to conferences, um, so many people you'll meet at conferences. Um, there's really just, there's just no replacement for that. Nice. Well, any other things that you guys want to cover before we uh, wrap up this episode? Uh, I'm good. I think I've covered everything. Yeah. Yeah. These were all some really great points. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dave and Steven, and uh, you'll hear from us next time on go dig a hole.